We're going back. We're going back. We're going back to the way things were. Back to the life we knew. Back to the fun-filled, sun-filled days before this endless night we've all been through. We don't want the world to change. Just give us the tried and true. We're going back to the way things were. For me and you We're going back to the way things were Back to what used to be Back to convenience and routine They're coming soon, I guarantee We don't want to change the world We're American things were, we're going back to the way things were, for you and me. <laughs> yes, is it possible uh, to go back to the way things were? Well, for those of you who really enjoyed the San Francisco Mime Troops uh, performance in the parks um, this summer, well, you have an opportunity to watch the performance uh, in Vimeo uh, through November 6th. And uh, we're going to be having uh, Michael Jean Sullivan, um, one of the Mime Troupe Corps members and writers, uh, joining us shortly to talk about this wonderful production. Um, it's really, really good. I watched the, the Vimeo um, uh, recording, which, you know, it wasn't like being in the park, because that's what the Mime Troupe does. You know, it brings theater to people, uh, you know, political theater in the park for free, and it's been doing it for, hmm, like 50-something years now. Um, long, long, long time. <laughs> and by mime, it doesn't mean that there are no, there are no words, just really great body gestures. Uh, it sort of takes... The Mime Tube takes its, um, its artistic uh, principles from um, from the original mime, uh, which was, you know, goes back to its political roots. And um, so we are, um, I'm going to read you the synopsis while we wait for Michael to join us. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, really, really good, and it's free, uh, the Vimeo um Recording, and if you want to donate, certainly um, the Mime True, which is a nonprofit, could use all of the funds that um, that people are able to contribute to its work. Um, in a country where we can finally stop wearing masks and get pizza and go to the movies, and where we again have a president who isn't dumb as a two-dollar ham, hard-working middle-class liberals Ralph and Alice wistfully yearn for the before times, when things seemed normal. But for Zoe, their 20-something daughter who grew up in a world of climate change, housing crashes, student debt, and the rise of dictatorships and the fall of the democracies, there is no better to go back to. For her, the purgatory of the last two years was just a pause from life in hell. So what's the point? 
Isn't it easier to just give up? If only her new, socially inept, maybe crazy, conspiracy theorist friend wasn't so intent on saving the world, why are they so convinced Zoe is the one to do it? Why do they need Zoe's help? What kind of name is and even and what even is a portal gun? So, you know, there's a little time travel happening in this particular program, which I love. I love time travel. That is so cool. One of my favorite books when I was a kid was A Wrinkle in Time. And and as usual, um, the cast is phenomenal. Um, Delina Brown is a director. Um, the music is and lyrics are Daniel Savia, who's joined us on the air. Additional lyrics are Bruce Barthal, um, and the musical director is Daniel Savio. The the, uh, the show runs 65 minutes, and it features a lot of great folks. Um, I'm looking for their names here. <laughs> oh, here we go. So we have Ralph is a middle-aged working-class man, laid-off bus driver, now uses family car to drive for Uber, and he's married to Alice, and he is portrayed by, looking now, the list of actors is somewhere else. <laughs> oh, darn it. Where is it? Hmm. Okay. Uh, okay, well, I'm going to have to come back to that. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, let me see if... No, Michael's not here yet. Okay, so there's time for me to find this. <laughs> yeah, well, let me just run through the, the cast, and then I will um, I'll give you the uh, names of the... And then the cast, the, the characters, and then I'll give you the name of the cast. So Alice is a middle-aged working-class woman. She lost her job as a bartender at bartender at a casino, currently employed at Amazon Fulfillment Center, and she's married to Ralph. And then Zoe is early 20s, college student, nihilistic, pessimistic about the future. She assumes the worst, splits her time between school and internship at community center. Um, and she got this internship before she lost all hope. She is just now doing it for credit. And she is Ralph and Alice's only child. And then Book is an eccentric, un, unhorsed, or I think unhoused person, um, maybe, <laughs> apparently living without the means or place. Yeah, unhoused person, but perhaps not as powerless as she seems. And and then Thomas H. Emerson is a forward-thinking CEO with fresh market-driven solutions to societal problems, has his eye on bigger political platform to transform America into an efficient, efficient business, and then we have Miss Olivia. She's Zoe's supervisor at the Center for Social Societal Change. Um, yeah, she's a good lady. Herbert is an unhoused person being served by the center, and of course, you know that the um, the actors play multiple characters, but it's not hard to figure out who's whom when they're different characters um, because they have great costumes. Um, Joshua Taintworthy is a robber baron of the 1880s. Yeah. And then we have a food kid, a disgruntled Mac Burger in the box employee. We have agitator, an anti-climate change activist. And then we have Dennis, an unhoused person and high school chum of Alice, the wife of Ralph. We have a cop. And we have Carruthers, who is a boss. And um, uh, let's see. 
I'm looking now for the bios for the cast. <laughs> okay. I'm still looking. <laughs> yeah, I thought it was like really easy to find. Um, okay, don't see it yet. So we will get back to that shortly. In the meantime, I think I'm going to take another musical break and see where Michael is. It's been a minute since we set this up. So um, he might not have recalled because um, uh, the director wasn't available um, and, and I know you're going to love Michael because, you know, Michael's been a guest on the show many times. He is phenomenal, phenomenal. And, uh, yeah, so what are you feeling like hearing? Hmm, back to the way things were. What might we play? Um, let's see. Hmm. I'm going to play, since it's the first thing that's coming up for me, I'm Michaela um, from Being in Love. Um, I think I'm going to play Lovely Day. It's a really pretty day out of there. Out there. Um, I don't know what happened to the rain. We had one wonderful day of rain, and then it's gone. But the sun is shining. So I'm going to play uh, being, from Being in Love, Lovely Day by Bill Withers.
<laughs> yes. It's going to be a lovely day um, because, you know, we have agency and we have an opportunity if we want to be an active participant in our own lives to make it a lovely day no matter what it looks like out there. But today is actually a lovely day. And we have in the studio Michael Jean Sullivan. Hey, Michael, how are you? Hi. Okay, Wanda, how are you doing? Oh, I'm okay. I'm okay. Today is a great day, and I'm so happy to have you on the air to talk about this wonderful, <laughs> wonderful play for this year's mime season. Um, back to the way things were. Is that possible? When I when I saw the the song and when I saw the title, I'm like, really? <laughs> the mime truth. This is the title yeah. of the current play. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, really, really great premise and phenomenal um, performances, and um, and so I wanted you to talk about the cast. But first thing I'm going to do in the writing and, and you know, in your, you know, your position and, and membership in the collective, which I don't know, how many years have you been with the collective? Goodness gracious. Oh, <laughs> yeah, I, I started with the company, and uh, my first show with the Mind Troop was like 1988. Oh, dang, 1988. Yeah. Oh wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I Zoe would say a, like. I came on as a. Oh, go ahead. I was just thinking with Zoe, you know, um, she would say like, "Whoa, it's like you know, like we think about dinosaurs, right? Did they really walk uh-huh. the planet?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I started. I came in as a replacement actor. Um, hmm. uh, you know, I always wanted to work with the Mind Troop because of the mm-hmm. political work and the comedy and the music and everything and the cartoony style. And so right. I was like a young actor trying, you know, working different places, and I ended up uh, trying out for the Mind Troop, and they kept telling me I was too young to work with them. And then finally, mm-hmm. a replacement, uh, one of the actors left the show, and so I came in as a replacement and never left. Oh wow, wow! And and because you grew up in Southern California, um, so how how did you know about the Mind Troop? Were you had you already been living up here? Well, had you been in college up here, or how was it? How did you find out about that well, kind I mean, of theater? I was a little kid in Southern California, so mm-hmm. I. But I'd been up here, you know. I moved up here when I was a little kid, so I'd been oh, up here okay. for a long time before, uh, before, you know, before I even wanted mm-hmm. to be an actor or anything. And mm-hmm. you know, I moved up here when I was in elementary school, and then I got up here, and then you know, slowly got interested in theater, and then in my twenties was when I decided when I got focused on the mind troupe. Okay. Oh, I don't think I ever knew that you grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area. Oh, so this is your oh, stomping yeah. ground. Oh. oh, yeah, this is my home. Oh. I, I was a little kid, and uh, I grew up all over San Francisco. I was in, mm-hmm. uh, lived out um, out in Visitation Valley when I was a little kid. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, but also in, you know, Western Edition and the Sunset mm-hmm. and Richmond District. We lived all over the city. Oh, wow, yeah. You know, I... It's, I hardly ever talk to people that grew up in Viz Valley because I grew up in Viz Valley. I mean, that's one of the places we oh, came really? here. Yeah, yeah, we lived in the Fillmore when we came here from Louisiana, and then um, and uh-huh. then we lived in Sunnydale and in the project, uh-huh. and then we moved to Viz Valley. That's where we got our first house uh, as renters. Uh-huh. And I went to El Dorado Elementary School and to oh, Visitation Valley Junior Valley. High. Oh, yeah, I, did, mm-hmm. I went to Viz Valley, uh, the elementary and the annex. It was like up on the hill oh. at the time. I don't know if it's still mm-hmm. there. 
and okay. and then uh, moved to Western Edition from there. Okay. Oh, nice. Where, what school did yeah, you graduate? Yeah, we lived down on. Oh, sorry. High school. Yeah, what school uh, did you uh, live down uh, on? Oh, I li- I graduated from Washington. Mhm. So yeah. I went from I uh, went from uh, Visitation Valley to and then I went to a school, uh, Grant Elementary, and then they kept shutting down schools because they were retrofitting them for earthquakes. So I got changed mm-hmm. from, from to all these different elementaries, and then ended up going to Roosevelt Middle uh, Junior High, and then Washington High School. Oh, and Roosevelt nice. Junior High is where I met Valina. Oh, really? You've known Valina since yeah. you were high school students. Since, wow. Well, since you were junior high. Junior, junior high, high. Roosevelt Junior band. High School, right? Yeah. yeah. You met we in met band. Met in band class. Mhm. Oh. So what's your instrument? I was a percussionist. She played French horn. Wow. Seriously? Oh, man. So we've known each other a long time. You really have. A very, very long time. You, like, grew up together. (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. I remember when when we finally started dating, when we were, uh, she was going to state and I was going to city. And, um... And we'd known each other all this time. My father used to say, you guys met in kindergarten, didn't you? And I was like, no. <laughs> we know each other quite that long. Mm-hmm. <laughs> wow, that's beautiful. Are you all going to write that book or do a play or something? Mm. Yeah, well, the, the thing is, is that what, what I've noticed is, is we have a hard enough time getting cast together. There are certain theaters, like the Mind Troupe is really mm-hmm. the main one where we would actually be cast as a couple. But we very mm-hmm. seldom get cast as couples at other theater companies. You know, every once in a while, like we got something at Cal Shakes, we played a couple. But part of the problem is we are uh, color wrong in that I am lighter than Valina is. And Hollywood oh. and America, it always mm-hmm. wants to have uh, a dark-skinned man chasing a lighter-skinned woman. So you see oh. a lot of couples where, where, yeah, I mean, if you look at film, television, mm-hmm. commercials even – it's more often it's a darker skinned man, even if he's not super dark, but he's darker mm-hmm. than the woman, mm-hmm. which is a way to kind of denigrate uh, beautiful dark skinned women in our culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we don't get cast, except for, like I said, at the Mind Troop, um, or some theaters that will really just see us as, oh, you guys are a couple, we want you in these roles, fine. But a lot of places, mm-hmm. like we used to audition for television shows when there's a lot of stuff going on up here. And we would both we would audition separately, and Felina would always be called in with guys who were darker than her, and I would always be called in with women lighter than me. And we, so we just couldn't get they just would not cast us. But yeah, it's just a, it's a flaw in America. It's a racist flaw in American culture, like so many. Wow. Yeah, I never heard of that one. That's crazy. Oh yeah, look check. Check it there. I remember uh, seeing, you know, I sit here and watch films, and because I mean, I watch a lot of films, and and mm-hmm. and just see it all the time. All of these guys are always like, however, what you know, the guy is just always chasing light. It's not just black guys casted to be in love with or fascinated with white women. And they go, no, we cast mm-hmm. two black people. Yeah, but the black woman is always lighter than the guy. You, and it's like mm-hmm. they just don't take dark-skinned black women into consideration as love interest. Uh, wow, and it's not just film; it's theater also. So, mm-hmm. 
Oh, wow. Mm. And and we're talking we're talking presently, right? Yeah. I mean, you'll see it every once in a while. You will you will mm-hmm. see it where it's like, oh, like like in Warrior King, the movie Warrior King, they do have a darker skinned woman and a lighter skinned guy, but it is so rare mm. that it stands out. Hmm. Wow. Anyway. Well, that's yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. I just I just love, you know, how you always bring in history and um and you know, Valina is the director um of of this year's production. And and you yeah. um yeah, I'm going to read a little bit of your bio and people can um read more at your your website michaeljeansullivan.com um jean g e n e and then sullivan s u l i s u l l i v a n um, dot com, and um, you are um, head writer, um, and also again, as, as we mentioned earlier, a member of the San Francisco Mime Troupe Collective, and you perform with all of the Bay Area's Tony Award-winning theaters: American Conservatory Theater, Berkeley Repertory Theater, Theater Works, and um, of course, San Francisco Mime Troupe, where you're also um, uh, a resident playwright, and you have written or co-written. Over 25 plays. Um, <laughs> you've also worked with San Francisco Playhouse or SF Playhouse, the California Shakespeare Theater, Denver Center Theater Company, Marin Theater Company, Aurora Theater Company, Magic Theater, Theater First, Lorraine Hansberry Theater, African American Shakespeare Company, and the SF Shakespeare Festival. Um, and you are the author of the internationally produced stage adaptation of George Orwell's 1984, which I saw many years ago, <laughs> and we <laughs> curiously acclaimed The Great Con. That was so awesome at SF um, uh, Playhouse. And in 2022, you were awarded a Guggenheim Fellowship as a dramatist. Congratulations. That's big. Thank Michael. you. Congratulations. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, wow. What Thank does that you. mean? Well, the Guggenheim is normally given to academics. It is normally given to people who are they're they're you know doing whatever the art is, but they're also teaching at colleges and stuff like that. And it's a um, it's connected to the same family that the Guggenheim Museum has a Guggenheim Museum in New York. And mm-hmm. so they pick like a uh, hundred and twenty or something people. They've been doing it since the '30s to give this big award to. So it's a financial award, and it's also a great honor to be selected because it's so few people. And so. You know, I had kind of had my eye on the Guggenheim for a few years, and I, but I'm not an academic. You know, I don't teach at colleges. I don't, you know, or universities. Though I've taught individual classes, I've guest lectured and stuff. But I finally got uh, people from, like, Yale and from Stanford and UC Berkeley and places like that to kind of recommend me for Guggenheim. Mm-hmm. And after a few mm-hmm. years, they finally went, ah, okay, sure, fine, here. Uh, That's awesome Yeah Yes, you're setting a precedent, right? Yeah, yeah Because, I I mean, they normally Like I said, the other dramatists that I've known Have gotten it are professors At colleges Mm -hmm. And I think that uh, One of the things they they asked me They said, okay, well We want you to write like no more than three pages On kind of your life story kind of like put together mm-hmm. that. And I wrote them like seven pages. I wrote this big thing. Just like, here's, cause I just like, here's all the stuff I've done. Here are all the shows mm-hmm. I've written, all the places I've been, all the things I've written about. And I think that also, they just went, okay, well, this is actually a lot of stuff. 
you know, mm-hmm. he kind of has yeah. written a lot of plays now and done all of this stuff. We really should uh, take that more into consideration. Mm-hmm. Certainly, certainly. I mean, you definitely have, yeah. um, you know, a canon. <laughs> I mean, you have yeah. left us with quite a bit of art that will, that's, you know, you know, when you, you know, transition into another realm, oh, my goodness, I mean, you will not be gone. <laughs> Which is great. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is interesting. I think about that every once in a while. That I actually do have stuff that I, I'll have left behind. Mm-hmm. Just, yeah, yeah, nice. you know, and you know, in this play, you know, we're looking at you know teleporting between you know centuries and moving in time and space. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't, you know, um, you've already done that. You know, with your work, you know, you're in a lot of different realms, and then you bring in history <laughs> into the work. So then you're like. Double dipping, literally. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I was a history major in school. You know, like, oh, like a sense. lot of actors end up being, they're, they're like, oh, they study drama from a young age or, or their voice, you know, or something like that. Valina, her degree is in counseling and psychology. And mm-hmm. uh, I studied history. You know, mm-hmm. cause I was like, mm, maybe I'll be a history teacher. That didn't work out. <laughs> oh, I got kidnapped by theater before I could become a history teacher. Yeah, well, that's a good good place to get kidnapped, particularly a political yeah. theater. <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, so it's like wow. Yeah, that was the thing about the mind because the mind troop was doing so much stuff about not just activism. My parents were very political, so mm-hmm. uh, so that was always a part of it. But also, the mind troop is very focused on history. Because it's like you're not going to know where you're going, and you can't know where you are unless you know where you've been. And mm-hmm. so I really appreciated that also as a mantra, and so that's been a big part of what I've helped to bring into the company. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And um, I was telling the audience before you joined us that, you know, so wonderful that um, that San Francisco Mime Troop has continued um, its um, new tradition of, of uh, offering, you know, virtually – uh, the plays um, mm-hmm. free or for donation. So that's really great, you know, that Back to the Way Things Were is one of those, you know, continuing. Because last year I remember um, the play, and you also developed something for the holiday seasons called The Red Carol, which was a radio mm-hmm. uh, show that was so awesome. Um, is this um, production, Back to the Way Things Were, is is that you're offering for this season, or are you planning on having a radio show again as well? Well, we're doing a few things this year, which is kind of uh, different okay. for us. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the Mind Trick used to do, like, full year. We would do a summer show for free, and then we would take that show to different areas. We thought that political message needed to be seen around the country and sometimes around the world. But as, you know, mm-hmm. the economy has kind of sucked in this country for a long time, you know, uh, since the – since the second Gulf War. <coughs> so colleges and universities <laughs> haven't been able to afford the company. Mm. So, um, so we, we tried to have, figure out different ways to get our message out. And when the pandemic hit, we were like, we, there's so much political stuff going on that we have to comment on. And so I started writing these radio plays, which the Mind mm-hmm. Troop did for two years. We just put out radio plays. But we also did... We also had always wanted to do a Christmas show, 
and I wanted to do an adaptation of A Christmas Carol, only make it really political. I mean, the original novel, which hardly anybody reads anymore, is actually very political. What we got used to are all the movie versions and ACT version stuff that have taken all the politics out of it. But actually, the story is about, you know, uh, it's, not, it's not about Scrooge being a jerk. It's about the whole society built on wealth and how the rich people take it for granted that they are rich and the poor people have accepted being uh, subjugated and oppressed by the wealth simply because they're wealthy. And that society was set up when Dickens wrote the original story, uh, uh, very stratified. The, the classes where it's like you are working class and that is all you ever are going to be. And that's supposed to be a bad thing. Um, and so I wanted to take it and kind of uh, change it into something that was uh, more about more activist, more to anger and, I mean, entertain, but anger the audience into making change, to activate them. So we did a reading of it when I wrote it originally as a live stage play. We did a reading at Occupy Oakland years ago uh, mm-hmm. when Occupy Oakland was a thing. Uh, on Christmas Eve, we did Occupy Oakland. And uh, uh, we got a review in the L.A. Times. Um, and Occupy, the folks working on Occupy were like, you should do this more. Maybe next year you can do it in more Occupy sites. Uh, but Occupy got crushed before that could happen. So I've been sitting there with this script, and then when, not, like I said, COVID happened, and I rewrote it as a radio play, which we recorded like two years ago, and we've been running it every Christmas. And every Christmas. So we'll be doing that again this year, but at the same oh, time, we will, so it'll be, you can listen to it in December. At the same time, we will be workshopping the stage version of the show through December. Mm. Um, and, to, you know, so we're bringing all the actors together in San Francisco because they were from different parts of the country. So everybody's coming in in San Francisco, and we're going to workshop mm-hmm. it for one month so that I can finish the stage version, the updated stage version. And then next year, we'll start performing it live as our... Christmas show, you know, as opposed to all of the other Christmas carols, we'll be doing a red carol as a basically kind of our attack on capitalism and, and you know, and how um, uh, Christmas, uh, as Dickens was talking about, it's supposed to be about humanity and it just became about consumerism and it became about what you don't have and it became about trying to make everybody envy and jealous of the rich rather than what he was saying was this is a time when we're supposed to see each other as human beings and how can we help each other against those who, who financially, economically oppress us. Yay! So we'll be doing that in the day. I'll be do, we'll be doing that in the daytime and workshopping that, and everybody can listen for free to a Red Carol on the radio at night. Whereas back to the way things were, uh, our summer show, which we did this year, was all about how, you know, once um, Trump was not in office anymore and people were like, I can leave my house, I don't have to worry about COVID anymore. Um, at that time, they were like, the United States, we, we finally pulled our troops out of, out of every place, you know, and, and so a lot of people thought, well, great, we can go back to the way things were uh, and pretend like all this stuff didn't happen. And I was like, Things sucked for a long time. It's not like back before Trump, everything was great. 
you know. Before Trump, we still had climate change. We still had oppressed workers, you know. We were still droning and killing people around the world. Our economy was terrible, you know, and has been terrible. And unions had been, had been, had been uh, you know, crushed. And, and just all of this stuff that had been going wrong in this country since the 80s, I mean, really forever, but really, I mean, for, for decades, the, the working class, had gotten it had gotten worse and worse and worse, and police violence against blacks had always been bad. It's just that everybody was staying home during COVID, and they could watch YouTube and they could see all these videos and see that oh right, black people hadn't been lying about this, but suddenly people were like uh, thinking this was a new thing. So there are all of these issues that I personally felt like, um, especially liberals, liberal Americans were thinking. Well, now we can, we can relax a little bit. And prog- some progressives were like, well, great, this is, now that Trump is gone and all of this stuff, we can deal with all of these other things. But I wanted to point out that these problems had been there. They didn't go anywhere. They just became more visible during COVID. They became more visible and obvious. The sexism and the racism and the classism and the xenophobia have become more obvious to everyone during COVID but they weren't new problems. So there were no good old days. Um, <laughs> oh, you just spoiled so, everything, Michael. Yeah. There were no good old days. That's my job. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I can look back and, you know, and think about times I was like, man, there were, there were opportunities in the past where we almost made revolutionary change in this country, you know. But you don't want to get sucked into nostalgia. The right wing are the ones that use nostalgia. They're always looking back to non-existent times. They're like, remember the 1950s? Well, first of all, no, I wasn't alive. But besides that, the 1950s were awful. If the 1950s were so great, we wouldn't have had to have the civil rights movement. The 1950s happens, I mean, it's like the movie Till that's out now. To show people, it's like, there were no good old days. You know, there was no, you know, great time. There was a, there's just denial and so the right wing and the conservatives, they're always looking back at these times, these, these false memories, these times when they think their grandparents had it great. And it's like, no, no. Um, and when it comes to justice, economic justice, racial justice, societal justice, there's no good old days. We have to keep progressing towards that's what progressivism is. We're progressing towards a better time. There are definitely date times in the past where things were much worse. So things, some things have been getting better, but that doesn't mean they're better. doesn't mean that those are the good old days. We have to keep the pedal to the metal. We have to keep striving, you know, to make things, to strive towards actual justice you know, hmm. to an actually hmm. better, just society. And we cannot allow progressives and liberals, we cannot allow ourselves to be sucked into false nostalgia. Musical comedy. <laughs> so, <laughs> that's what I do. Right, yeah. So so did you write Back to the Wing Things Were? It sounds like you wrote it. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I did. Oh. I mean, I wrote okay. all but one scene. There's one scene. There's one scene that takes place in a um, in a, a, a social center that's helping the unhoused. 
and mm-hmm. um, and that scene, we're fortunate that uh, Marie Cartier, who is a, also a member of the Mime Troupe and a writer, she actually worked in a center uh, mm. in San Francisco that helps people. So when I was pitching the show to the troupe and I was talking about the different scenes and, and now it's going to be one scene, she said, oh, can I work on that scene? I want to work on the script for that scene. So mm-hmm. she and I, so we wrote that scene together. Oh, but yeah. yeah, yeah that's oh, mm-hmm. I wrote this, you know, I wrote this show. I wrote some of the lyrics of the songs, but mainly it's Daniel uh, Savio wrote uh, the music mm-hmm. and lyrics for the show. And, and we brought in some new actors to, to, yeah. to do this play. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, a great great segue. I wanted you to talk about, about the cast and, um, you know, the creative team and the musicians, of course. And and then I wanted to, like, segue into um, talking about Muziki Roberson, who just made his transition. Oh, yes. Um, yeah, yes. So, um, so in that order, or whatever order you like. Yeah. <laughs> you want to well, talk about yeah, Muziki had, first, that's um, fine. <laughs> Well, uh, let's start off with the cast and, and because okay. there's stuff up coming up with Muziki. Um, that we, uh, yeah, we wanted to, um, when we were casting it, trying to figure out who could be in the show because we wanted to have, I've created this character, Zoe, who's there for two parents who are kind of like the just middle-aged, liberal, let's get back to the way things were parents. But then they have a daughter, Zoe, now, and Zoe's uh, just starting uh, college and has an internship at this homeless shelter. But the thing is, is that Zoe, when people, uh, you know, our ages, um, well, let's not say our age, I don't know how old you are. People that are more uh, middle-aged can look at their kids and go, why are their kids so disaffected? Why do their kids feel like everything's got to change or is really bad? And you think, well, people who are under 20, their whole lives have been climate change, bad economy in the United States until very recently at, in its longest war. You know, we sent troops into Afghanistan. We started bombing Afghanistan and sending troops in right after 9-11. And we didn't take troops out until, like, what, this year? Um, this, that was a long time. And, you know, uh, these kids that grew up being told that, for instance, if they got on an airplane, uh, they have to take their shoes off. These are, this is a generation that has always had to take their shoes off before they got on a plane because they've been told that somebody might try to kill them, that terrorists might try to blow up the plane. Their lives are in danger, not just because they're in a metal tube 30,000 feet in the air when they're on a plane, but that there might be a bomber on the plane too. Their whole lives have been about them being terrorized by fear mongers in the government, you know, telling them everything is dangerous. School shootings might happen. You could get killed at a Waffle House. You know, uh, uh, the economy is terrible. Their, their jobs are worse than the previous generations. And so Zoe, that character, uh, is a nihilist who has no hope for the future. Um, and I needed to find just the right actor to play that, someone who could play someone young, but at the same time have enough to be able to bring a certain nihilism, but at the same time, uh, really have a little spark of hope that she always is trying to hide from people. And so um, Alicia Nelson is an actor who hadn't worked with the Mind Troop before, but I knew her from seeing her theater works, and she's worked around the Bay Area. She's in another theater, an online theater company that I'm in, and I'd seen her read, and I knew she'd be really funny and really dramatic. So as I was writing the part, 
I just called her and I was like, are you available to do this live group show? And it worked out that she did. She's a very popular actor. She's currently, I think, back in Massachusetts doing a show. But mm-hmm. she had seen the Mind Troop. She'd been seeing the company ever, uh, all her life growing up in the Bay Area. And so, uh, so we're super lucky to get her. And then um, Tekoshima Sada Carrero, who is also, who's a costume designer for the Mind Troop, but also an, an actor, writer, and director for the company. I was really glad that Keiko could be in it again. And she played Book. Book, yeah. who is a mysterious character, let's say, for those who haven't seen the show, um, <laughs> who uh, is a friend of Zoe's, but seems to be insane. Because Book is like a seriously crazy and conspiracy theorist, as far as Zoe is concerned. But um, is she really? Hmm. <laughs> and then uh, Andre Amaradico plays. Now, he, Andre's in – so, oh, but let me let me go back. Uh, so, uh, Norman G., who's in the show and if you uh, – in the video. Uh, when I was writing the show, originally I was thinking, well, I'm going to be in the show. But then I was doing ragtime at TheaterWorks. And so it, it overlapped with the Mind Troop show. So I needed to find someone who could replace me in the show. And Norman is an actor I've known for decades. You know, he works all over the place. He's really fun and good and very smart. And so I asked Norman if he could come in to to uh, to do half the season, and then I would replace him for the other half. And uh, and he just did a great job. So he's in the video. I was really happy that we finally got to work with Norman. Um, and Lizzie Calagero, who people have seen Monster shows, she's played. She's been in uh, a few of our shows over the years, and she's just hilariously funny. And so um, and so as uh, she was in it, and then Andre Almoronico, who this I think is his fourth show with the Mind Troop. Um, he's really, he's also a really good, extremely smart actor. And I, I cast him to play, he plays like six people. Everybody else pretty much plays one person. But Andre plays everyone from the, the um, corporate villain of the show to, um, you know, uh, uh, an unhoused man who is an old friend of one of the characters to... Uh, a working class kid at a fast food joint who made the mistake of not joining the union and now all the work, the, the owners of the place laid everybody else off until he's the only one left, left who's getting all of this, uh, all the work piled on him. So Andre plays all of these different roles. And so I really wanted to, you know, keep the cast kind of small and tight and to show this thing. The whole play is, it's a real time play. Basically the parents are trying to go out to have a grown up date and at the same time that their daughter is going to work to her uh, internship at this center, this community center. And so the whole play takes place in the time the play takes. You know, it's just this one, you know, an hour and a half of their lives, and all this stuff happens. Um, yeah, yeah, and yeah, so we did we, it. We opened it the 4th of July, and – oh, go ahead. Yeah. No, I was just thinking, you know, all of the different um, – how you bring in – so much, um, you know, to think about. You bring in the police, you know, um, and um, and 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 there, you know, there's joke about about um, um, George Floyd, and and they're stopping an uh-huh. older black man, and and then and then I really love the, you know, the scene with um, the person at the fast food place. He, the person uh-huh. you mentioned, he is just. 
over the top, you know. Um, <laughs> it's pretty amazing. And um, and then, you know, when you bring in the uh, the, the new CEO, oh, sorry, um, didn't turn my phone off. Um, the new CEO of the um, of the uh, the shelter, uh, the social service kind of agency, they help people that are un and underhoused, you know, get housing and just get other kind of resources. He's really plausible, you know his his way mm-hmm. of doing things. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, we had a few people who came from. Uh, different uh, shelters and social service organizations see the show, and they were like, this is exactly what's happening to us. This mm. idea of a public-private partnership where somebody mm-hmm. comes in and they are appointed executive director or CEO of this organization that was founded to help people, but with a, with a capitalist a corporate mindset, the goal is to make a profit. It's how do you make a profit? Who are your customers? And what he says is, your customers are whoever gives you money in exchange for something. Therefore, the customers are the donors. And uh, Zoe, who works there, is like, no, no, no. We don't have customers. We have clients. We have people that are helping. And he's like, no. You know, in the United States, in, in this society, it's all about providing something in exchange for money. So if our customers are the people who give us money, and she's like, well, what do we provide them? And she goes, peace of mind. We provide them the idea that there's not going to be a, a tent on their street, that they're not going to have to give homeless people money. They get to feel good about themselves, and our job is to give them what they want, to get, not to help the people in the tents, but to make sure there are no tents on their street. You know, now, if we do that by accidentally helping those people, fine, but that's not our goal. Our goal is to help our customers. And that's a corporate mm-hmm. mindset. So you, that's how you end up with nonprofit organizations that say they're helping a community, and then you find out that they didn't do anything but collect money. You know, mm-hmm. the good ones are helping people. Their, their goal is to help, but other ones, their goal is to just make money, to employ themselves. And so, uh, yeah, it's really a challenge. It's something that we have to keep our eyes on. The goal is mm-hmm. to help people. Yeah, so sure, yeah, sure. I, uh, after I, I think when we did, we should did a show in Berkeley, and, and people came up and they were all like almost in tears because they had, you know, dedicated years of their lives to helping folks that were, you know, having um, housing distress and, and difficulties. And they said, yeah, their agencies were just being taken over by these corporatists who had no interest in helping anybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, and and the kind of jobs that um, you know Norman and your character have, and then um, Lizzie's, you know Norman's um, un- yeah. unemployed at the time, but then getting employed's wife has. Did you talk about Lizzie mm-hmm. yet? Oh yeah, I did. Yeah, Lizzie's character. Yeah, okay. that both of them have their past. Those two characters, Ralph and Alice, they had. He had been a bus driver, and she had. Been um, she had worked at a casino as a as a, a bartender at a casino, but those had been shut down because of COVID, and so now she was working at uh, an Amazon fulfillment center, and he was an Uber driver, mm-hmm. and because it's like the new economy, they're not really you know she can't be in the union because Amazon's a horrible place, 
an Uber driver is a, it's a terrible job, but because uh, it's not really a job. Um, but they're so happy to actually have something, you know, in this new economy. So that's why they're going on in their day is to celebrate, you know, their mm-hmm. and, and you know when you think about it in terms of the general economy and what people do, those are two terrible things to have. But they're so happy that they have something. You know, that's part of their kind of living and uh, living a lie of Mm -hmm. of things are better. And it's like, no, that's a step down. Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, their daughter, um, um, Alicia's character, Zoe. Zoe. Yeah. Yeah, she she sees, you know, her parents' lives and doesn't want this life, these lives for her life. Um, But then what are her options? Um, and so she gets really yeah. excited, you know, when the woman who is running the nonprofit that she um, is an intern at, um, you know, I mean, it's, you know, she's really happy, you know, when the um, the new director talks about this other uh, scenario and um, and seems to value her. Her her knowledge, <laughs> and you know the the little bit yeah. of it, you know institutional knowledge that she has because she just she hasn't been there that long. She keeps on saying, "Well, I'm just an intern. I'm just an intern. <laughs> you know, I'm not a brain right. tra- yeah. trust." Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, that that idea that you know, uh, you know, when it comes to all of these different societal problems, that just people are like, "Well, why can't we just solve this problem? Why can't we just? We don't want to throw money in it, but why can't we just solve these problems?" And this guy comes in and says, I could solve this problem. And so the board of directors just hires him. He's rich, and he's like, he's got a plan. Because that's another thing is that we as a society have tendency to think that rich people are smart. But no. I mean, a great, great, great many of them simply inherited money and have managed to not lose it all. I mean, like Donald Trump. I mean, he inherited a lot of money. And... I remember reading an article one time. They said if Donald Trump had simply inherited the money from his parents and put it in a savings account, he would have more money now. He has essentially lost money all his life. It's just that he started with so much that he hasn't lost it all. That's Mm -hmm. it. He's not smart. And that's the case with a lot. I mean, like Elon Musk has never invented anything. He inherited $300 million from his parents' South African emerald mines. That's it. He inherited a lot of money. He didn't invent Tesla. He bought Tesla. And then, oh, here's the thing. When Elon Musk bought Tesla, part of the deal was they had to change their company history to say he was a co-founder. But he wasn't. Mm. The company had been around for years before he was there. He's just a con man who inherited a lot of money. Um, and so we think – we look at these rich people as if they are intelligent and wise and better with money and savvy, and they're not. You know, Some of them have been smart. A very small percentage of them are smart. Most of them have been lucky, and that's all. And then a big chunk of them just inherited money. They married money or they inherited it, and they're all – benefiting normally from gender and race privilege. Hmm. If you take away the luck and the the privilege and the inheritance, 
than them, the ones who have actually worked hard and through their own device and invention became rich, it's a really small number. And so, but in our play, this guy who shows up and he's got money, the board automatically thinks he knows what he's doing because he's rich. And then they uh, put him in charge of the center. And so he's like, what, thinks the same thing that most people do. Well, he's rich. He must know what he's doing. Hmm. Yeah. Goes to, um, you know, the uh, the theme of, of the play, um, you know, about, you know, what do we value? Mm-hmm. You know, what's important? Yeah. Yeah, and that's, I mean, with a lot of mindset shows, that's the case. It's like, what do you, you know, there's the hype that you hear from, from uh, you know, the big corporate media. There are these ideas that we get from, you know, film and television and all of this stuff about economics and about racism or, you know, uh, it, it's so disappointing. I mean, not disappointing, but discouraging that one of the most popular shows in the history of American television has been Law and & Order. And Law and & Order was specifically created to make the police look good. That's all that show was made for, and that is all it does. It makes the police look good. The guy who, Dick Wolf, who created the show, he openly said that was the goal. He wanted to make a TV show that the police would be happy with. So um, we have now all, you know, a generation, again, of people who've grown up. When they watch the news or they go outside, the world they see of police brutality and institutionalized racism and injustice is completely different from the thing that's shown on television, which is just always making the police seem good and just and interested in justice, and they always get their person, and they're smart and all of that stuff. Uh, so the, for the mind troop, our job has always been to say, well, between those two, trust your own experience. If the police are dangerous, they're a, mostly a dangerous gang, and uh, they're not interested in justice as an institution. Institutionalized racism and sexism and xenophobia in the police department. Um, don't believe the media stories that you see. Believe your own experience. And the same with if you're told that life is great, that the environment is doing fine on television. You know, if, 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 if television and movies reflected what's going on in the real world, almost all of them would be about climate change because that's the big existential threat. But people are like, well, this drought's going on, except for the news. Why am I not hearing about this? I guess it's not that big a problem. It's like, no, it's a huge problem. You know, sexism, uh, uh, you know, how women are treated. And, and, I mean, the Me Too movement, which is still a thing, you know, watching television you wouldn't, and movies, you wouldn't think that it was that big a deal. There's some movies about it. But mostly not. Um, and so really getting people to say, you know, you need to trust yourself and your experience. If you are being mistreated uh, and feel like an, injustice, an injustice has happened, you're probably right. Now, uh, you're going to have to temper that because there are going to be situations where you're being told who to be mad at. You know, you lose your job. So you're told it's the immigrant's fault. You're told that. That person who tells you that is lying. The person who tells you it's the woman is the reason that you're not getting as much money. Or it's, you know, it's the black guy over here 
is the reason you lost your house. You know, all of those things that you're told are lies and propaganda. And again, it's the mind troops job to, to by using comedy and music and all of this stuff to make it super entertaining, but also to go, no, injustice is injustice. And when you see it, trust that you're actually seeing uh, that that's the reality of the situation. Don't believe the propaganda that's used to divide us. Again, musical theater. <laughs> yeah, yeah, injustice is injustice. You know, trust your experience. Mhm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's important that people don't um, yes disregard their experience because they don't see it reflected in, you know, the the dominant narrative or popular culture. Mhm. Mm-hmm. So then they feel that yeah. their experience they don't exist. Like they must be imagining things, but they aren't. Yeah, it must be. Oh, it's just me. I'm the, I mm-hmm. must be suffering because everything else is so great. And it's like, no, your neighbors are suffering. The other people in your building are suffering. People you pass on the street. Everybody is, uh, uh, the working class is suffering. The rich aren't suffering. But you notice mm-hmm. how often we hear about the rich on the news, yeah. in the newspaper, whatever it is. We're constantly hearing about rich people. You know, we're hearing about movie stars. We're hearing about all these people and their little problems. Oh, you know, this football player, what's his name, the quarterback for the uh, Tampa Bay Buccaneers, uh, uh, Tom Brady. He just got a divorce from his supermodel wife. Who cares? You know, these are two millionaires who got a divorce. But a huge swath of the American population know that. They know that that divorce is happening. But there's all of this suffering that's happening of farmers losing their farms and people being poisoned by pesticides and, and, and you know, drought, drying up stuff so that there's less food. There are all of these real problems. People have been trained to see homelessness and uh, the, uh, the unhoused not as an issue about affordability of housing, and not about people losing their jobs, but, a, but we are presented this issue as an inconvenience for rich people. You know, why can't they just walk down the street? And why do they got to see tents all the time? If I'm walking down the street and I see a tent, I'm, my first thought is, shoot, is there anything I can do to help this person? And mm-hmm. normally they're living their own lives and they don't want to hear from me. But I certainly don't blame them for this. And I see it as, uh, the fact that this person is in this position is a problem with society. That person isn't the problem. Their tent isn't the problem. The circumstance that, circumstances that have led them to this situation are the problem. What can we do to undo the circumstances as opposed to just pushing this person from one street to another? But to see it as I've got to push this person from one street to another is a rich person's perspective. Mm-hmm. And most Americans just – most Americans are a couple paychecks from being on the street and should be focused on that. Instead, they're focused on thinking like rich people. You know, mm-hmm. oh, I've got to have a fancy car. Oh, I've got to have this. Oh, how am I got to have the newest Apple Watch? Oh, I've got to have – you know, it's like stop thinking like rich people. You're not rich. You're, you're in the working class, 
and you know how to do stuff that benefits the working class and stop cutting taxes for rich people, stop thinking about them. They are not heroes. They are, and many of them aren't villains either, but mainly they're jerks, you know, jerks with our stuff, and we just shouldn't want to be like them. Mm-hmm. It, it, it is so frustrating to have so many people who are, uh, you know, working class folks that are so desperate in their daily lives that spend their time trying to figure out how to help rich people just in case they ever become one, and they won't. So stop mm. trying. You know, <laughs> it's not that you shouldn't try to better you. It's not like you shouldn't try to make more money or do anything like that. But in the meantime. You should be trying to do everything you can to benefit the working class because that's where you are now. You know, if your house is next to a mansion and your house and because and the people in the mansion keep coming over to your house and taking pieces of wood and taking furniture to make the mansion fancier, you got to stop them from doing that and build their house better as opposed to helping them tear apart your house to make a mansion because someday you might live in one. Oh, mm-hmm. It's very frustrating. Oh, what a great analogy. Yeah, dismantling your house and, and you know, just facilitating that because you want what they have, even though what they mm-hmm. have, you know, like you say, um, with regards to, um, you know, Trump and Musk, that they didn't even work for what they have. They inherited it. Right. And then both yeah. of them, you know, the way they inherited their riches um, was not equitable, and it was not, um, oh. I mean, the way they got rich was because they stepped on people, and, they, and you know, there's like blood there in that, in that wealth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's blood in those emerald mines. And, and mm-hmm. Trump's father, uh, 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 you know, people accused him of being in the Klan. That's how bad mm-hmm. he was. You know, not only was he probably in the Klan, but he was just a horrible racist. He was sued for not um, uh, renting, because he was uh, in, in real estate just like Trump was, uh, uh, for not renting to black people for, you know, in New York. Uh, he was a horrible racist bastard who raised a horrible racist bastard of a son and family. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's nothing admirable about him. And like I said, and when we think of the mines in South Africa, we don't think of happy miners making lots of money and buying houses. We think of these poor black South Africans struggling every day to, to you know, under horrible conditions to just have enough to live off of. Those are the emerald mines that Elon Musk's family made money off of. Mm-hmm. So they, you know, when you say there's blood in their money, it is absolutely true. We should never want to be like terrible people. And training our children, raising them to want to be like terrible people is an awful injustice. And so when we see all these little kids and they all want to be stars, it's like where are the little kids that want to be plumbers? That's a good life. You know, um, that just, just, that's why I put that in, in the great con where the character uh. aunt, she wants to be a plumber. Because that's fine. Plumbers make good money. They own homes. They raise happy families. Um, it's a good working class job. But but we don't have, you know, enough kids who are being raised to see that enough is enough. You know, to be raised and say, I want to be a bus driver. I want to be a, 
a plumber. I want to be a school teacher. I want to have enough. Instead, we raise kids in this society to want everything. They have to be stars. They have to be – I mean, this is a weird thing to say, I know, but – so Valina and I have been together a long time. We got married in 92. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, uh, when I proposed to Valina over pizza in a restaurant in San Francisco, uh, I never gave her a diamond ring. You know, they were like, oh, you got to give somebody a diamond ring to be to, – to, when you get engaged. And the bigger the diamond ring is, the more it means you, you love them. I didn't give her a diamond ring because blood diamonds. Why would I do that? Mm-hmm. What a terrible thing, mm-hmm. you know. But mm-hmm. the fact is we've been together all this time. The diamond industry, which is awful and terrible and almost slavery, has convinced so many Americans that diamonds – are a sign of love. Actually, they're just a sign of oppression. And I'm guessing that a lot of the people that made sure to give their fiancé a diamond ring, those marriages didn't last. <laughs> I'm just saying. That's right <laughs> a weird thing to say. It's an assumption. <laughs> but I'm just saying, you know, that we need to, you know, base our, our lives on sustainability and on love and trust and not things. Because when you base mm-hmm. your life, your love, your interest, your relationship on things, the most important uh, entity in your relationship is the salesperson. Mm-hmm. The most important glue in your relationship is purchasing, is, is capital, is, is consumerism. And that's not what it's about. It's about a, you know, teamwork and partnership and people getting together to make the world a better place, not about the things. That's so true. <sighs> Comedy. We again. live in a capitalist that's society. That's what I do. <laughs> I know. Yeah. But that's the thing is that our cap, there's something, you know, there are so few capitalists in this society. There's so, because capitalism means you make your money off of money. You do not work for a living. The goal of a capitalist is to never work. They make their money off of purely off investments. Most people in this country think they're capitalists, but they're not. They're working class. They work for a living. That's all it means. You labor in exchange for money. You're a worker. But people in this country think they're capitalists. And our capitalism rests on socialism. Our, the capitalism in the United States rests on public roads, public schools, public infrastructure, public dams, public energy. It rests on all of this stuff. And then capitalism and capitalists kind of like, like vampires, like leeches feed off of public wealth. But actually, they're a small percentage of people in this country. And again, it's like us supporting the rich. People always want to say they're capitalists. They want to pretend that they're part of this because they don't know what it means. It would be like having a bunch of humans and a few vampires. And then you have all of the people looking up to the vampires who are feeding off of them and saying, hey, we're vampires too. And it's like, no, you're not. You know, you're going to McDonald's, you know, you're going to Shake Shack, you're going somewhere and just getting food and going to the store and, you know, going to Safeway and getting stuff. You're not a vampire. The vampires are the ones feeding off of you. Why do you want to be like them? Um, anyway, yeah. <laughs> I got that a lot of analogies, a lot of metaphors and analogies, and that's why I'm a playwright. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so wonderful, you know, to hear you sort of unpacking all of this and your thinking and, um, you know, sort of, what, you know, how the cast, you know, came to be and the roles that they're in and and the whole idea of having a character called Book. And I'm like, yeah. does it have to do, like, with the power of words and how people mm-hmm. need to read? Or <laughs> I mean, it's like, is that also yeah. included in, okay, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's all in there. And it's also the parents, the characters' parents uh, mm-hmm. were both librarians. And so they loved mm-hmm. books more than anything else, so they named their only child after the thing they loved the most. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah, yeah. And and I really like, you know, sort of the whole idea of conspiracy, conspiracy theorists, um, you know, sort of just sort of weighing that and not just dismissing you know, these particular concepts that people find mm-hmm. strange. I think about Dick Gregory. He was always talking about, mm. you know, conspiracy, and he had all this mm-hmm. evidence because he read a lot. And he was able, because he was an yeah. elder, he was able to connect stuff because he remembered, you know, <laughs> what was and what yeah. is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was He was great. He's a great comedian. Um, mm-hmm. And that idea of how you... Like I said before, knowing where the only way you can know where we're going to go and where we are is by looking at the past. And there's a difference mm-hmm. between a conspiracy and a conspiracy theory, mm-hmm. you know, because what I think right. about are conspiracy realists, the real mm-hmm. conspiracies, because that's all it means is some people got together and talked. That's what conspiring means. Um, mm-hmm. You know, that, that while people are busy talking about all the conspiracy theories that you hear in the media – that are the crazy ones. The world is flat and all the scientists have been lying to us or COVID was fake and all the doctors were lying to us and, and, you know, stuff like that. And it's like, no, how about the ones that are really true? Like, like uh, how, um, you know, the oil industry gets all of this money from the government. And so the, for years, uh, the oil industry got billions of dollars from the United States government to, uh, research alternative energy. This is back in the 90s and the early 2000s. They got all billions of dollars, you know, Shell and BP and all these companies, Exxon, got all of this money to research alternative energies for when oil wasn't going to be a thing anymore. It turned out, and they admitted this in Congress, they didn't spend any of that money on researching uh, alternative energy. They spent it all on finding new oil. That was a conspiracy. They all agreed to do that. That's a real conspiracy. They really conspired to take our tax dollars to find stuff that's killing us. Mm-hmm. And they just lied about it. But we don't hear about those, those conspiracies. We don't hear about the conspiracies uh, uh, that involve, you know, how we you know, invaded Iraq and then took over their, their oil industry. Um, we don't hear about us... Uh, America's long history of undermining democratically elected governments around the world, assassinating leaders, so that because those countries wanted to use their wealth to benefit their own people, and we didn't want them to do that. So we would kill the leaders so that we could keep taking their wealth. Those are real conspiracies that happened. Mm-hmm. They're conspiracy realism. Instead, mm-hmm. we get, you know, Stuff about aliens and, and oh, Democrats are, 
uh, what is it, liberals are, are kidnapping babies and the White House is whenever Democrats are in, it's all pedophilia, all of this crazy stuff to distract us from the real conspiracies that mm-hmm. are, have been making our lives worse. Right, uh, well. yeah. Yeah, and so yeah, yeah, I was so just people thinking. like Dick Gregory that really talked about that mm-hmm. and would really try to use comedy to say, oh, mm-hmm. now I got you here, and you're here for the jokes, and you're here for the ha-ha part, but I'm also going to try to educate you and tell you how the system, the establishment, as they called it in those days, is actively keeping you down. And we need mm-hmm. a revolution to change things. Right, right, yeah. And, and I was just thinking as you were speaking uh, about how people – you know, they only know, you know, the um, uh, the conspiracy, you know, um, the not the real conspiracy, but the false conspiracy. And, mm-hmm. and that's because, you know, the corporate media is where people get their news, and the corporate media serves the rulers, I mean, to the point of fabricating um, stories or suppressing information. Like, you will never mm-hmm. know <laughs> if that's how you find out yeah. about what's happening in the world because what's happening, you have to actually, it's not like, it, it doesn't hit the newsstands. You have to you have to actually mm-hmm. want to be informed to be informed. You have to do some, you have to do research. You have to really sort right. of um, evaluate um, who's telling you this and what, what's in it for them. <laughs> yeah, and, exactly. And, yeah. You have to really mm-hmm. look at it. You have to read. You have to do – I mean, luckily there is all of this. You can go on the Internet and find stuff, but you really mm-hmm. have to discern. Like you're saying, well, wait a minute, I read this story that said America is a force for good in the world. But then you, if you keep reading, you're like, well, there are all of these times where we've overthrown democratically elected governments. That Why is it – you know, people say, oh, well, you know, capitalism, force for good, United States, force for good, you know. But then why is it that a country like – the Democratic Republic of Congo, which should be one of the richest countries in the world because of its mineral wealth. Everybody needs the stuff that is in Congo. Everybody, in all of those countries, right, in that central section of Africa, should be the richest countries in the world. We can't have iPhones. We can't have computers. Our, we can't have jet planes. We can't have all of this stuff without the stuff that they have there. Why are those countries so poor? Well, clearly, we're not, we have, and you look at the history of how those countries, they became independent, and then the CIA assassinated their leaders, we undermined them, we got them to fight amongst themselves Mm -hmm. to the point, and then we bought their leaders. We kept killing off their leaders until we found leaders that would sell us their stuff cheap. And so their workers, their citizens are suffering. We are rich with all of their stuff. We are not a force for good in the world. You know, you can't be a force for good when you go around killing people that you think might not like you or people that point out that you're not a force for good. So we kill them and we call them terrorists and kill them. You know, that... There are portions of the United States that are wonderful and people want to make the world a better place. But the people who are in charge are normally terrible and not interested in making the world a better place. They're interested in keeping the United States rich. And as we should know by now, 
Rich people will steal from anybody to stay rich. And so, um, you know, so why don't we see those stories? Why don't we all know about Patrice Lumumba, you know? Why haven't we yeah. all read Franz Fanon's Wretched of the Earth, which we, we, when the Black Panthers were around, you had to read Wretched of the Earth because it was about the uh, you know colonialism as a psychological mindset, not just for people in Africa and Central America and South America, but also for black Americans to know how you've been con- colonized in your mind. You know, it was standard. This was a standard revolutionary book to read. And, mm-hmm. and I talk to people about it now, and they're like, I, they have never heard of it. You know, really? They've never heard really? of it. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, they've wow. never heard of Wretched of the Earth. They've, mm-hmm. they've, I mean, they may have heard of the Black Panthers, but they don't even know what, they don't know about, about the, you know, when they keep, they periodically they make a film about the Black Panthers, which is good, mm-hmm. but they never talk about their politics. They always make it about, you know, they make it about the guns, they make it about the struggle and all that. But they don't say that they're socialists. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They cut that part out because they're like, oh, that's going to offend people. Um, Nobody will see it if they know they were socialists. Uh, Mm -hmm. And it's like, no, that part of black American history is incredibly important. You know, who would these Mm -hmm. people, the founders of the NAACP, socialists, all of these um, our history has been narrowed down to, you know, like many Americans, like basketball, you know, basketball and Martin Luther King. That's what we as black <laughs> Americans are given, you know, hmm. and, and they may, they'll say, oh, I heard about so-and-so, I heard about this, but that's, that's what we get. And, you know, every once in a while we say, oh, we're going to put so-and-so on a stamp. But we don't know the history of that person. We don't know why, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and our, our revolutionary, our past is full of revolutions as black Americans. We are constantly trying to rebel against our oppressors. But those, those revolutions, especially the successful ones, those revolutionary changes are suppressed in our history to make us think that we've never succeeded and our and our oppression is somehow based on ourselves. Our, our only fault as Americans is that we don't have enough stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's, you know, so the propaganda is deep. And we need, to, we need to get back to the, that is a thing where I want to get back to the days when, yeah, teachers were paid more. Where being smart was good, <laughs> you know. <laughs> there are right. times where being smart, really having facts and figures, you know? I mean, you think about right now, who are the, some of the most famous black people in the United States? I mean, Barack Obama, Michelle Obama, they're very smart, you know? Mm-hmm. Law, does, law professor, kind of smart. But then we got people like Yee, you know, the ex-Kanye West. Not the smartest guy in the world, you know? Mm-hmm. He is unwise. He is anti-wise. Or, or Kyrie Irving, who was point actually saying the world was flat for a while. Hmm. These people are good at one thing, but we hear about them all the rest of the time and all of this other stuff that they are ignorant 
you know? But then we have people who are actually smart that we don't hear about. We hear, you know, like, I, I mean, you can ad- admire someone for the music they create, but that doesn't mean they're wise or have mm-hmm. political insight. That just means they do that one thing well. Cool. Buy their record. But <laughs> there are people out there, there are teachers and professors and doctors and lawyers, uh, you know, this rich a group of black intelligent folk that we just don't hear about. They, are, they end up not being role models because our kids aren't seeing them. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Oh, well. Again, yeah. that's why I do come. <laughs> right, yeah. Well, Michael, gosh, this has been such a great conversation. I mean, I mean, really, really, really great. Uh, uh, I think I'm going to have to go back and listen to it again because you've got such gems here. Um, I was wondering if, if we could, um, you know, sort of uh, talk now because um, we're kind of over time yeah. uh, about – um, I think I had a list, um, but maybe you know uh, the music is such an important part of of the uh, the mime troupe um, theater, um, and mm-hmm. because I mean it's it's it, it's definitely another character um, because we yeah. learn so much through the musical interpretation of these salient points of whatever the production happens to be, you know, that year. Mm-hmm. And um and you mentioned, you know, that that you, you know, you wrote, I don't know how many songs, I think you you wrote at least one, but um, you know, mm-hmm. the person who does the musical direction, Mario, he's been on the show before with you and talked about, mm-hmm. you know, sort of his his um his lineage. <laughs> Just like you talk about mm-hmm. your lineage. I mean, you all don't come from nothing, yeah. you know? Um yeah. like there's a yeah. tradition that you came up in. That's how you were able to like shift so easily into, you know, the kind of writing you do, the kind of work you do. And and then um, you know, I do want to talk a little bit about Muziki because you knew him and yeah. he was, you know, with the Mime Troupe, um, you know, band. Yeah, when I when I first which, which came in, my, a, mm-hmm. Yeah, when I first joined Muziki was I overlapped with Muziki by a few years. And mm-hmm. um so I, I didn't get to know him as well as I would have liked at the time. Um, mm-hmm. that, that, you know, cause I, I came in and I was on the road and then I was at, there as a replacement actor. So I worked with him. And then just when I joined the collective, we overlapped in the collective by like two years. And so that mm-hmm. was the period where I got to know him better and I had to understand him and see his rich knowledge and how much, how, just how smart he was and, you know, all the instruments that he played and all and his musical uh, interpretation and way to see the world. And then he left the mime troupe. He'd been there for like eight years or something. And uh, he left the company uh, to go on and do other things and, you know, working in other groups and, and being a very central part of, of kind of music creation in the East Bay and, and helping other musicians create things um, and he had his warehouse space over in the East Bay where people could rehearse and perform. Um, and so he was kind of always out there as a resource with the Mind Troop also when we had questions mm-hmm. or something. And he, I'd see him every year at the Mind Troop shows. Um, and then I had the good fortune of when, when COVID happened and we couldn't go anywhere, I started interviewing 
uh, mind troopers, veterans, current and veterans. Um, and Muziki is one of the people I interviewed. I, I recorded oh. this like 90 minute interview with him, but I did them as video interviews and his mm-hmm. video connection wasn't very good. So I could never post it. Um, but I have it. So what I have to, what I want to do is go through, I just haven't had time cause I'm busy, um, to go through and just strip <laughs> out all of the audio and, mm-hmm. you know, to take just the audio of his, cause what I did was I would, I asked him basically to tell me the story of his life, yeah. not just like, what was it like working with the mind troop, but really where was he born? What did his parents do about his time in the army and going to high school and how he first got into music? and his inspirations and all of this stuff all, you know, through the first part of his life. Um, but I have to go through and strip out all of the audio and clean it up because we had a lot of glitches so that I can post mm-hmm. just the interview with him and, and their um, uh, memorials to Muziki. Um, I one at the Mime Troop and one in uh, the one that already happened in Oakland at mm-hmm. uh, Jack London Square. Um, so, and we're going to have uh, one that's more of a, like, Mime Troop family on mm-hmm. um, soon, actually, at the Troop. Um, and people like Shabaka, uh, uh, yeah. uh, Barry Shabaka Henley, ex-Mime Trooper who's done television and movies, he's, like, paying for it, and he's coming up. And, you know, Mime Troopers from around the country are all kind of getting together to have a memorial um, for this man who was much greater than we knew. As, you know, when you work with somebody and you see them there every day, um, you don't know the impact they're having on everybody else's life. You just know the impact they're having in your life. And then sometimes it's not until they pass away that you, you realize all the lives they've touched and all the people they inspired, you know. So I was fortunate that I, by interviewing Muziki, I learned so much more about him. But, um, yeah, he, he's definitely someone who's... Um, going to be missed. Uh, the, you know, I don't know if you've ever seen the Mind Troop building. Our building in the Mission mm-hmm. District has a big mural on the front, uh, kind mm-hmm. of like with a lot of historical stuff about the Mind Troop, and it is in the process of being renovated. It's like 30 years old, and it's being, oh, more than 30 years old, and it's being renovated because it had faded and stuff, and the artist, Juana Alicia, came up from Mexico to redo the whole thing, and Muziki is um, in the mural. That's how important oh, nice. a part of the mime trippy was that he is he's there, you know, off playing the piano on the side. And so um, we're going to uh, that's going to be partially unveiled <clears throat> at his memorial. And then the big unveiling mm-hmm. will be next year. But um, but, yeah, it means so much to you know family and friends that he is permanently part of mime troop history, tradition and family. Mm hmm. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that's so important, you know, the San Francisco Mime Troop is an institution, and, um, you know, um, you know that will be here, <laughs> you know, that will mm-hmm. that will get, you know, like, will be a, a counter, um, a, a counter argument against whatever, whatever's being said, like, you know, because, you know, you all have publications, you have books, you have collections, you know, um, you've got video. So there, and as always, like right now, you know, we're getting ready to have another um, another election, you know, throughout the country. Yeah. And, and so, you know, as always, you know, 
not necessarily you're not necessarily telling people what to do, but in the parks, you know, people have tables. <laughs> they can, people can get information mm-hmm. about things that are going on. Yeah. You know, there's always this um this collaboration between if you don't believe us, here are the folks in the trenches. Here are the people doing the work. <laughs> you know, with mm-hmm. unhoused people. You know, this is these people are the ones that you need to support. And they're right there. <laughs> for people to connect. So, um, yeah, so the San Francisco Mime Chew really provides a really wonderful service of connecting the public with those that are doing the real work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because, I mean, yeah. we know that. We know the limit of theater in that we are, mm-hmm. uh, people will say, oh, you guys should have said this and that, and you should have done, gone more into the weeds on this issue. And it's like, no, 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 that's not our job. We can't give the audience all of the facts because that's like a term paper. That's a thesis. That's not super entertaining. Our job is to activate people, to show them the injustice that they might have been living with and accepting and show them uh, uh, to start them on a path of how they can change things, what they should be, how they've been distracted, what they could be angry about, what can be inspiring, because you don't want to just bring people down. You also got to say change is possible. You know, but mm-hmm. to get them interested in, like you were saying, uh, to go online and check out this issue. Go online and look at this. There's a table over there from these people. And there's somebody over here from the Green Party, and there's somebody over here with, you know, uh, in mass incarceration now. These different things mm-hmm. to find out this information. Uh, you know, so the, but like I said, I, uh, so often I think people just feel like everything is so overwhelming that they that they have to shut it out. They have to go, no, I can't deal with this problem every day. And they want to go, well, here's a way that you can – we use comedy and music and free shows in the park to kind of get people to open their brain up to the possibility of change. And, and we could give them some, some facts, and then we have to get, go, okay, now you've got to do the rest of the work. And we hope you had fun at the show. But, you know, the revolution isn't going to revolutionize itself. It's going to take all of us to do this. And mm-hmm. we need to inspire each other and to make sure that none of us lose heart in our march towards justice. Right, yeah. And then um, on your website, besides, um, you know, being able to to uh, see this current production back to the wings, the way things were through um, November 6th, um, you know, that is available on Vimeo, and people, all you need to do is go to SF. MT for San Francisco org to click on the link. Um, are other um, shows from the past um, also available, or you just have like teasers? Because I'm looking here. We, well, and yeah. I. Hmm. Yeah, we can't put on. I mean, we can put on whole shows. We just, when we do put on a whole show, um, mm-hmm. we pay all the actors. We have to pay the actors and musicians for the show mm-hmm. to be on. So everybody who's in okay. the show will get another paycheck for that week. And we can't afford to put on shows all the time. Um, mm-hmm. The actors union has allowed us. I mean, they, they, during COVID, the first thing we did was turn around and put on a show uh, that was a freedom land, which is about police brutality. Because, yeah, that was great. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And we wanted to, we had that show and we had a good video of it. And so when the summer came with all of those protests and the mind troop, our show would have been about all of this stuff. Um, that was going on, but that was when all the theaters closed down, so we couldn't do anything. 
So while on the one hand, like I said, we're doing the radio shows, which are in part about police brutality, but also about a lot of different issues, we got permission from the Actors' Equity Association to broadcast our video of Freedom Land. And we did it for two weeks, and then it was popular, so we extended it for another week. But we have to pay the actors for each week. If we had enough money, those shows would be online for free all the time. Um, we just don't have, you know, we're always trying to get a grant. Uh, specifically, we need like a big, a big fat media grant to pay us uh, so that we can pay, because, you know, we're a union. We're, as, a, as a pro worker and union workplace, we do pay people. People sometimes think, well, you guys do free shows. Nobody gets paid. It's like, no, we do this for a living. You know, we don't take corporate money. We're not going to take money from Bank of America, Wells Fargo, or any of the capitalists that are oppressing us. We get money, donations from the audience, and we use that money to pay for the shows. Um, and so, but we are trying to find a foundation or someone who, can, who we politically agree with who gives us enough money to be able to broadcast those shows on a regular basis so people could just come to the Mind Troop website and go, I want to see that show that they did about police brutality, about you know, uh, the history of, this history of uh, socialism in the United States, or the, the show about Treasure Island and, and, the, and uh, the pollution that was put in Bayview. You know, if they want to see those shows, they could see them anytime they want to. But, like I said, it just it costs us um, like $8,000 for two weeks of the show going on the air. And again, we're doing it for free. If people go on to the Mind Troop site and they put in the, the code, Power to the People, they can see the show for free. We'd like them to donate money. It makes it so that we can afford to do more stuff. But we always want to give our activist art to the widest possible audience at the lowest possible price. Free. Right. Free to, free to see, but not free to do. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I'm really um, looking forward to um, the audio from the 90-minute uh, conversation with Muziki and the other um, the other interviews you did. Are they uh, on the website somewhere? Oh yeah, you can just go onto the website and look up the Mindcast. And okay. you know, I interviewed um, uh, Robert Alexander and mm-hmm. Bruce nice. Barthol and Helena Brown and almost like all yeah. of these different mime troop people. Some of them have worked with us for a long time. Some people only did one show or did a workshop, mm-hmm. you know, but I wanted to get to know them because what they, all of those interviews were about, and I'm still doing some, there's still people I need to interview. I still need to interview, you know, um, uh, uh, Shabaka. You know, mm, um, there are yeah. certain people who are big, but it's just he's so busy with his television show that I haven't found time to get 90 mm-hmm. minutes to talk to him. Um, but uh, uh, what I wanted to really hear about from people wasn't, like I said, it's not about their mind troop lives. It's about what inspired them as artists. Mm-hmm. How did they get to be that, you know, so that, so that the people that re- hear or watch the interviews can see that, it's not like people are super – it's not like – I didn't come from a theater family, you know, not at all. That My, my father was a shy fellow. Um, no, but I'm the only performer in the family, and I didn't come from a family with money, you know. I mean, my parents were okay, but they're also really unemployed. We have food stamps and stuff. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, there's – it's not a special 
thing. People always are like, oh, my, 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 you know, my mother was in the army and my father was, you know, working at a store. These are just regular working class people who were inspired at some point to become artists. And that can happen to anyone. It's not a, it's not a special group. And so that was part of what I wanted to show the audience is that mm-hmm. folks are just folks. Right, yeah. Um, for the uh, code, power to the people, um, is it power, and are there spaces between the words or all together? Nope. Run together? All together, I think it's all capitalized. It's on the website, you can see it. It just says, code, power to the people. Okay, all right, cool. All righty, excellent. Wow, this has been a really wonderful conversation. I didn't expect you to have this much time for us. Thank you so much. Um, and uh, and so I, I did upload the uh, the other song, um, the uh, French fry song. So I, we're gonna close with that because it's cute. And it uh you know okay. those who don't know the story or those who really like the play and want to see it again, I certainly encourage people who went to the play in the park, you know, to revisit, um, you know, those wonderful moments uh, by watching you know it on Vimeo through the sixth of this month. And uh, November sixth, and and maybe they saw it, you know, when you were, um, you know, not not a part of the cast yet. So then they could see you in in that particular role. No, no. The, <laughs> I mean, the so you video, don't see Norman in that role, and yeah, yeah, yeah. Norman is the one. So maybe they saw you. Yeah, because I, I did the closing the of the show. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So well, it's always wonderful cool. talking to you, Wanda. Yeah, it's my pleasure. It's always talk great speaking to you. I always learn so much, and it's just wonderful just to catch up. <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, I hope to see you soon. All righty. Yeah, I haven't been able to um, do any um, indoor theater, and I was just back um, from traveling, so um, I yeah. wasn't able to come. When when, when the, the troupe opened, um you know, on on a July Fourth weekend at Dolores Park, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. But yeah, I hope to see you all soon too. Maybe next year, you know, when you're back yeah. in the park, I'll be able to get over to the city, and uh, and and because yeah. it's, it's it's a nice tradition. I think about the Mime Troupe every every July Fourth as a true independence query. You know, not not that we're free, <laughs> <laughs> but it's a good query. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you take good care and. Um, yeah, okay, you too. And good luck on all your projects. <laughs> hey, so many things happening. <laughs> Is anything we need to um, to look for you in um, that you want to let uh, us know? Well, like right now, I'm in rehearsal for the musical version of the play As You Like It. Uh, oh, which you're going to be open. Nice. Yeah. yeah, in a couple of weeks at San Francisco Playhouse. And then... Right. Uh, and, then I'm in another show at the Playhouse after that, and then I've got to work on the okay. show, and somebody else is considering doing another Bay Area theater, is considering doing 1988, my 1984. And and my uh, uh, great con is supposed to open in Chicago in December, oh, wow. I think. Congratulations. So, yeah, so, I like the great con. That was great. Yeah, that was a, yeah, I hope I can get that show done more places because of the message of the show. I mean, it's... It, it is a, it's a political play. It's a political comedy that puts mm-hmm. black people at the center in a way that's different than other shows, I think. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. It's really phenomenal. Um, so are they going to have their own cast, or um, are some of the people from here going to be going to Chicago? 
No, I think Chicago's going to have their own cast. They've got uh, – I haven't met the director yet. But, yeah, they're going to use their own cast. When we did the show, the show got transferred. After it played San Francisco Playoffs, it played at San Diego Repertory Theater. And they had one Mm -hmm. actor, the guy who played uh, Temujin, uh, Genghis Khan. Mm -hmm. He he did both of those productions. But Chicago's getting somebody else. Okay. And then hopefully it'll play other places after that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, for those of us who can't get into the theaters, I really appreciate those theaters that are, you know, keeping the virtual connection whenever possible. I know sometimes you can't do it, but, but I really appreciate mm-hmm. it as a person who can't go to indoor performances at this particular point. Yeah. Uh, time, yeah. So I want to thank you all so much. You have the mind true for. I know it's expensive, so I hope you know there's <laughs> some philanthropist that wants to invest their money into something that's really important, like art, <laughs> political, <laughs> yeah, messaging, really. political yeah. art, like the mind true. You all have a, you know, you have a great track record. Great track record. Okay. I mean, you all are an institution that continues to turn it out. You know, this great work. Really appreciate it. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. We <laughs> try. Oh, you're welcome. Yeah, yeah. Well, you take good care. I'm going to play this song, the French fry song from Back to the Way Things Were, and encourage people again, don't miss it. It's really fun. <laughs> thank you so much, Wanda. Oh, you're welcome. You take good care. Tell Valina she was excellent direction. <laughs> okay, thanks. I will. All right, you take good care. All right, bye-bye. Bye. One, two, three, four. They treat us like nothing. They treat us like meat. We're grist for their mill dirt under their feet. They're starving the workers while making you fat. They're burning the planet. Would you like fries with that? Well, we say no more. A revolution has begun. The pigs can take this burger job and shove it up their butt. <laughs> sure and sweet. <laughs> that yeah. was a rant. For sure. <laughs> yeah, that character, he is, he is heck of fun. That's a great, yeah, the people who are like, could you imagine getting that song when you're trying to buy some food? Like, where did your appetite go, right? <laughs> <laughs> Y'all take good care. Peace and blessings, everyone. <laughs> okay. Bye-bye. Bye.